1: was to blindfold your partner and take them around or just make sure they're safe and let them be in the world uh, and then for 15 minutes and then to switch so what was it like?
2: amazing
1: yeah, <laughs> amazing yeah. What, what did you well what did I thought you, I had only soles of my teeth and nothing else just the souls yeah, yeah. and sometimes my
0: palms uh-huh. and then it felt like all the sounds and the sensations were i could feel them but they were also kind of yeah well, i guess they were related and different separate but no uh-huh. like everything was just kind of more yeah it felt like I was just way bigger than like hmm.
1: so that's an interesting line the senses were related and then different, but not.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it, was, yeah it felt like a, I, well, I mean, I could feel like the sun had come here, I just felt the, the heat. So I felt uh-huh. some heat. I don't know where it was. If yeah. It really was close here or there. It just. So if I would. But then rather than just making it like a heat and sun, I just kind of let it be. And, yeah. And then the sounds were. I could feel the sounds coming and going and the, um, and the people coming and going but at the same time they, they felt like some of it was me and some of it was them Uh huh. so I was really feeling like I had absolutely no body uh-huh. I just like I could feel my feet because that's what was like stepping yeah. or something, the rest was like, unless I would be like touching like a yeah. wall or something yeah. so it was very interesting uh huh
1: someone else
3: I found like um, like I was following my interest in a way mm-hmm. that I don't normally do mm-hmm. like it was normally I, did, I follow what I think I should be doing or whatever but uh-huh. this is like just a pure like following where my interest was taking me uh-huh. so uh-huh. that was like a really new experience
4: uh-huh. mm. I always know where I space I have a very good sense of that even with blindfold where I am. But my body kept shutting down from fear. It would just uh-huh. stop. It, you know, actually, no, Move forward. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Sophia with some take my arm and encouraged me, guided me for it because I had stopped. stop. Yeah. I had lost the sense of where I was. Uh-huh. Whenever I never had lost sense of where I was I would stop. Yeah. And it was fear. I would contract. <laughs> and I, I just couldn't, you know, I wouldn't go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So i breathe deeply, or, or, or even that didn't help. So people would take me by the elbow and propel me, yeah. r- remind myself that I'm safe. I'm coming forward. Uh-huh. Yeah. It really felt like it brought me into walking meditation. <clears throat> uh-huh. Because I was so aware of the mechanics of my body moving. Uh-huh. I just feel the wind and sound. But it freed me up in such a way, I really trusted the land I had complete confidence that I was not going to bash into anything. Uh-huh. And so I was moving in a way that really um, freed me up from the way that I normally move. Maybe it's in the way that I'm maybe, maybe way. But um, I just felt so connected to the earth. Energy just went right at me. Yeah. And it felt you know, really smooth, even though my footsteps weren't very far apart. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I could have done it all
1: after. It. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that for a two week intensive.
5: <laughs> I found the difference between meeting and the was uh-huh. really interesting for me because I didn't, I felt so responsible for my partner. And it's like, why? Well, Want to take him places to have him really challenging and feel, but in the same instance, I felt like all this parental ownership, safety, and and those kinds of things. Yeah. Trying to okay, just he's walking and just going to not let him bump into anything. So I I felt much more like completely present when Mm -hmm. I was Mm guiding. And then when I was being led, at first I was I was tight and I had my hand out like, and I thought, he's not going to let me fall down or and So it's like that whole trust thing that Peter was like about. Yeah. And then I just really like let go into the sensory experience of it. Yeah. So it was the, the first part was this really hyper vigilant seeing everything, but seeing things in a way of function and form and and, and um, danger. Mm. And he is mm. like even where, what is the realm of like, how, how am I going to cross the street? All this mm-hmm. technical mm-hmm. adventure. And then being led, it was just smells and sounds and vibrations, and mm-hmm. wind and sun. I went over a wall. <laughs> I would not have done it with my eyes, by the way. So, so, an and, um, but just this, there was an abandonment uh-huh. that came, which I was really surprised with. So it was, uh-huh. it was so cool. Well, the difference.
2: Yeah. yeah. I
1: just don't uh-huh. The opposite, actually, I think very safe. Very uh, safe. blindfolded yeah. um,
0: as close to you, having know, my eyes open, walking down the street by myself. Huh. It's almost like kids stopping around, you know, your parents are watching, and you're safe to mm.
1: yeah. So you felt safer mm-hmm. blindfolded. Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. With someone leading.
1: With someone leading, yeah.
3: Someone that I can really trust. This is the leader.
1: So. Yeah. Who is your partner? Oh, yeah, right. Adriana, uh, Adriana right. I felt so much curiosity and so
3: much joy. joy. <laughs> I was
2: like, what's the worst thing that could happen? Somebody else
3: The worst chronic car hitting you with their bicycles. So, yeah, I just, I really felt interested in... in Experiencing space from the inside in a different way than when I'm like going for something. Like that. And I found it interesting to walk down the hallway. And when I think of the, when I think of the hallway and walking in the bathroom, it's mm-hmm. not so far. It's just so it's linear. But when mm-hmm. it's blank, but suddenly, it's like it's not just like a five-second walk. It's suddenly, what if there's a wall? Like there's so many other. Actually, I felt more danger inside this building than I did outside. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, and then the last thing we did was um,
0: Larissa brought me the plants and just actually I reached I just reached into the plants <laughs> so such a full sensory experience uh-huh. and I just felt like an infant like, mm-hmm. for the first time feeling yeah. like a plant
4: Yeah, It almost felt like autism I mean, it's where you just sort of, and partly it's like being in public and sort of an awareness that people are walking around and you're like you're <laughs> something <else>. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Was those, like,
4: things. Uh, yeah. um, it, I don't know if anyone's seen the Large von of films. It almost mm-hmm. felt like, like, that, like,
2: that, like that almost like a sort
1: of social. Yeah. yeah. Just I an mean, entirely different experience. Mm-hmm. To gasp.
0: Uh huh. That was just like I was caught by surprise, or. Something. Right. It was just like I was catching my breath. Like even, it's, I mean, it felt okay. It was just yeah. you know, new sensations.
5: Yeah, and I noticed you did that a couple of times too. Yeah, yeah. Or something like you know, stole the other senses or others. Sort of, you know, mm-hmm. Or you know, your voice. All the other senses seem to be just so heightened. Mm-hmm. So that seems somehow. So yeah.
6: Well, it's nice that everything becomes a surprise. So I yeah. was like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? So it's like, yeah.
3: It was amazing to notice how much just entering a shadow felt like you
2: did wall.
5: fall. Yeah. The temperature from the end. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Like just yeah. You just get yeah. Yeah.
3: And, and in, in relation to that, I feel something about. Um, recognizing my need to process and recognizing the necessity of going to the bathroom show, but also the, the need that is somewhere in me to process the feeling of traveling from here to there and that it is a journey and it is a movement and moving from here to there. And something about not quite knowing how that fits into the life that is expected to be lived, but finding my own space to process those things that we do. Like, we cross from shadow into light all the time. And I don't take the time to process that, but my body still feels it's still there. Mm -hmm. And just because I don't allow that time doesn't mean that it, like, washes off. I think something sticks. So it reminds me maybe to make time for that. Mm -hmm.
5: nuances of um, unsureness of placing my foot and thinking I'm moving from my core and can't find my foot. That was like, uh-huh. scary. And then when you let go, I was like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, hmm.
1: yeah. so we could I want to talk together for a few hours about this but we don't have that much time left in the afternoon and if we don't cover some of the Sandokai I'll be in trouble (laughs) so um, um, basically I want to look at Jose's description of her experience Uh, sometimes the senses are apart Mm -hmm. and sometimes they're all together and sometimes they're not Which is basically the (laughs) Sandaka. So what we've covered so far, the mind of the great sage of India was intimately conveyed from west to east. Among human beings are wise ones and fools. But in the way, there is no northern and southern ancestor. The subtle source is clear and bright the tributary streams flow through the darkness. To be attached to things is illusion. To encounter the absolute is not yet enlightenment. And now here's Jose's line. Each and all the subjective and objective spheres are related and at the same time independent. Related and yet working differently. It's exactly what you said. Um, one of the things we can sum up so far in this poem is this urge that Sikito is suggesting. He's urging us to remember the oneness in everything we do. We take everything so personally. When you chant and you're trying to keep up and know which word you're at, and you start taking it really personally. And then you forget what it feels like to, to chant with the group. Um, so returning to oneness like being blindfolded is returning to the feeling of being alive uh, what does it feel like to be a living being well maybe we all touched that this afternoon eating together and then being blindfolded um, what does it feel like to be a living being and that feeling is what makes us all Dough. That feeling is what makes us all the same. That feeling we can touch of being a living being. You're not um, a rock, even if you're called Stonehead. You're not a rock. Um, all the senses interact, or all the spheres interact. The word the word for that's being translated here is "mon," which is. Uh, The word translated as sense, but actually it means gate. And this really has to do with the mechanics of perception, that our sense organs are like gates, or they're like doors. I like the idea of a gate more than a door, because it it goes both ways. Uh, The eyes can go after things, and they can also receive. The ears can go hear what they want. My mother calls this selective hearing. Uh, Or the ears can be so receptive that there's no noise. Just everything is sound. Everything is just gradations of sound, worlds of sound, spheres of sound, field of sound. Um, In the Yoga Sutra that we've been studying, this is called Pratyaya, which we were translating as perception. Um, So in Buddhist psychology, there is not this idea that we have in Western uh, philosophy and psychology that pre, actually pre neuroscience 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, that there, we have this idea that there's this thing called consciousness, and it's just there all the time, right? It's this fixed thing like your soul. It's just there. We can't explain it or see it or we don't know where it is, but it's just consciousness is there. And because of consciousness, which supposedly we all have, then we can uh, be aware. And in Buddhist psychology, there's a completely different perspective because Buddhist psychology goes after big permanent ideas like this. And if you break down your experience, see, Buddhism is not really a philosophy. Um, It's also not a psychology. It's a little bit more like what we'd call epistemology, phenomenology, something in there. Where the interest is not what is the world, or what is God, or where is God. It's how, how do you experience the world? Subjectivity. And the basic idea is you have six senses. You have the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body or skin... And the sixth sense is your mind. Your mind operates just like another sense organ. it, It may rule, but in the same way that your ear can hear a sound coming and going, your mind, the mind, also is aware of thought coming and going. And you can contribute to the sound field contributing to the sound field, or you can be completely receptive and just be open to the sound field. You can contribute to thinking, or, and this is hopefully what you feel early in the early days of meditation, is that if you're just watching thoughts, you can see that there are thoughts with no thinker. That there are thoughts arising and passing away that you are not thinking just like you are not making all these sounds. So there's this idea that the mind is just another sense organ. And it operates like all the sense organs. So every sense organ, there are six sense organs, has a sense object. And the sense object for the ear is sound. The sense object for the eye is form. The sense object for the tongue is taste, and so on. And the sense object for mind, manas, is thought. And your your mind thinks thoughts and recognizes thoughts and watches thoughts. So if you imagine there's a house and it has six windows, six doors, or six gates, then you can see how your mind-body experience is basically the opening and closing of these six sense organs that are happening all the time. But there is no like person in the house running around, opening (laughs) one, closing the other, and making sense of it all called consciousness. They make sense of each other. There's no central command that you can observe that's making sense of it all. And the time when you can start to see that closely is when you realize that you don't think all your thoughts. And this is a parallel to contemporary neuroscience, which argues that your brain is not your mind. Because your brain, we don't know where it is. Your brain is not in your head. Your brain is communicating with the world, with wind and with chemicals and with layers of your breathing and hormones and so on. The brain is everywhere. So no one knows where the mind is. Because it isn't. We're going to get to that soon. So, what is consciousness? There are six different kinds of consciousness. When the ear makes contact with the sound, you get sound consciousness. Or we would just call that listening. When the tongue has contact with um, saki you get taste consciousness. When the nose has contact with incense, you get nose consciousness. Does this make sense? And when the mind has contact with a thought, you get mind consciousness. So there's these different consciousnesses, and in every kshana, in every moment, you have is consciousness is happening. And, you know, there's one text called the Abhidharma that says, in one moment, there are 64 of those consciousnesses happening. But that's a little absurd. How would you ever know that? But it's okay. It's a nice idea. So, in each moment, this is how consciousness is happening. In other words, consciousness is dependent on a sense organ and a sense object. Now, What is really fascinating about this is that when you use the term interdependence, this is actually where it comes from, this model. That our experience is so interdependent that there is no sound without your ear. If a tree falls in the forest, does anybody hear? It's a moot point. There's only a sound to you when you can hear it. And if there's a sound to someone else, it's interesting, but it's not your experience. You see? Does this make sense? Okay. So, um, six sense organs, or six gates, six objects, make six consciousnesses in it. So they, they lean on each other. So you can't have an ear without sound. You can only have an ear with sound. So, so the thing we call the ear is a function. It's a process. It's not a thing. We say, oh, this is my ear. But it's your ear because it's sound. Uh-huh. And you can't have sound without the sense organ. And you can't have consciousness without them both. So they work together. Um... The sense organ and the sense object inter are, they they co arise, they they arise together at the same time. Uh, nothing is born by itself. You see, the sound comes alive with your body at the same time. Um, this this. Uh, 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 um, a word that's used here. Um, the subject and objective object spheres are related and at the same time interdependent. The word that's used for related it, it, that I found really interesting, um, it's a Chinese character that means uh, things flow in and out of each other. So the ear and sound flow in and out of each other. You can't tell when you hear a sound where the sound begins and where it ends and some of you who have been on retreat with me, this is a common meditation exercise I do on retreat where I instruct you to listen to sounds, maybe we'll do this tomorrow to listen to sound and really try and feel where do you end and where does the sound start listen to the sound and... Where do you, where is that boundary, you know? And, and you start to see it doesn't exist. You, you can't really find it. And it opens, it makes me go, <laughs> you know? And it really opens us up, you know? to really experience how the sound is not inside and not outside. Um, At another level, the level of the Heart Sutra, um, or the level of Do, uh, there is no ear, no sound. There is no eye, ear, tongue, body, mind, no sound, smell, taste, touch, phenomena, no. Mu, in Chinese, mu, no. Or in Sanskrit, neti, na, no. There is no. So, in other words, they're saying to this philosophy, this idea of the sense organ, the sense object, well, good idea, <laughs> but no. Really, if you take that idea and you turn it on itself, then you see that there is no ear. Where does the ear start and end? The ear is just a linguistic idea. Just like this wall. If you tell someone this wall, if if Wittgenstein's not here, but anybody else, if you say to them, this is not a wall, they'll say, you're crazy. It's holding up the ceiling. (laughs) Well, that's not a ceiling. (laughs) But if you got up on a ladder and you tried to find where the wall and the ceiling meet with a microscope, you couldn't find it. They're only a wall and a ceiling because they're interdependent, right? Because they inter are. And then so linguistically we say wall, ceiling, rose. I remember when my son was born and gave him the name Arlen. And it was the weirdest thing for the first week. It's like, who, why Arlen? Like, it's like this name went on top of this whole experience. And then a few years later, he's Arlen, and you don't think about it. uh, Elaine is Elaine. And yet Elaine's not Elaine. (laughs) Um, And then if you want to take it deeper, there's also impermanence running under this. So as you're hearing a sound, as you're hearing, it's disappearing. As you hear the sound, the sound is disappearing into nothing. Not nothing, but no thing. The sound is no thing. It doesn't exist how you think it exists. And nothing is not nothing. It's everything. But it's not a thing. So some people go, oh, I'm going to meditate so deeply, I'm going to go into the realm of nothing. And then that's an idea. That there is a nothing. But it's no thing. And this is called emptiness, which is an idea. There's no thing emptiness. Emptiness is empty of thingness. So, um, that's what the Sandokai is referring to here. When it says, each and all the subjective and objective spheres are related and at the same time independent. Related and yet working differently. So, this means that sound and your ear are not really two. It means that reality is always much, much bigger than itself. As soon as you go, that's what that is. This is really, really important when you feel pain. When you feel pain, you say... I'm in pain. And there's some mechanism of language that adds to the suffering of being in pain. But you can also unfix your way of experiencing pain by opening to the sensation of it, the movement of it, and not taking it as me or mine. There's pain. Here's pain. Um... Susan, who's not here, she she was at Spirit Rock last year, last spring, uh, on retreat with Trudy Goodman and, and Jack Cornfield. and she was she was there, and Jack Cornfield was giving a talk, and was nodding a lot in the talk, and then he fell over, and, and passed out, and they called, you know, someone ran and called an ambulance, and um, so Susan said when he passed out. He sort of came to a couple minutes later and he just started doing a body scan. Discomfort in the heel, okay in the head, breathing in the left side. And this is what he did the whole time until the ambulance came. His practice really came through in that moment. He just lay there and just said out loud oh, what was going on. Not like, oh my God, I'm dying. <laughs> Call my children, and you know, what did Allen Ginsberg do when he's dying? How can I help you? I'm calling all my friends. I want to know how I can help you. And you can do this in your life to see that even at the sensory level—that's what the Sendokai is getting at—even at the level of your sense organs, there's interdependence. Sendok is not trying to posit some fancy theory of perception or some grand phenomenology. He's just trying to say, even at the level of when you hear this sound, it's in you. Or as Shinri Suzuki says, when you hear the sound of the blue jay, peep, 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 it flies right into your heart. It's in you. It's not that the blue jay is in you, But it is that the blue jay is in you. That you can only experience the world subjectively. All the feminists love that. So you can only experience the world through your subjectivity. Yeah? Objectivity is a joke. Isn't it a joke? You ever try to do this in relationships? You're having an argument with someone. And you're like, "Well, I can see objectively." <laughs> and so I let me tell you. <laughs> Does anyone ever try to do that? Like you're having an argument, and you go, "You're so emotional. Let me tell you what is happening objectively." <laughs> no way. No way. That's not good. That's that's not cool dharma talk. <laughs> Um, when you hear a sound and you meet it as though you're blindfolded you, 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 we're not doing this exercise of blindfolding to pretend we're blind and learn what it's like to be somebody who's blind we're doing it to see so when you hear a sound and you don't label it, you just are open to the field, to the data, to the field, that's enlightenment. It's so big. And if you can feel how big that is, that's the dough of the sandokai. That's the world shaking hands with you. Dogen says, don't go out into the world and verify it with everything you know. That would be delusion. But if you go out into the world not knowing, that's enlightenment. And then he says, the world verifies you. Is a nice idea. It's like when people learn bird watching, you know. They they go bird watching, and they learn all the names of the birds, and then it sucks for a few years. Because every time you see a bird, it's like, oh, that's so and so. Check your book, you know? And then you miss the. And then you have to get past that to be a bird watcher. So you can recognize, oh, that bird, and then see it. But there's this process we all do where you still have to learn the name for the thing, like in kindergarten. And as adults, we're still in kindergarten (laughs) in terms of perception, aren't we? Judy uh, looks after bees and makes amazing honey. And one time she told me that she uh, was trying to read about bees through books and she wasn't really learning a lot. So she built, it was so smart, she built a plexiglass um, hive. What do you call those boxes?
5: Shelter. Or a super.
1: Yeah. So that she could watch the bees. With the bees instead of reading it in the book and that's how she learned how the bees do what they do by just watching it's really so in a way the plexiglass was your blindfold
2: mm-hmm.
1: right it made you see in a different way right so this is what we're trying to do as healers as artists as peacemakers as activists as friends is what we're, we're trying to use our bodies to help people see a different way. And it has to come through your body. You can't just tell people. Oh, you want to know what the answer is, Rose? (laughs) So that you can be a really good student? No. And then in that pure moment of listening, that is nirvana. The extinguishing of the self-centered and then don't make a fuss about it. Then just let that pass on. Let that pass on. Um, and that's touching your heart, your true self. And then you remember it. Some people think like remembering your Buddha nature is like some really esoteric thing. Remember, it's just like remembering your social security number, yeah? which I have a hard time actually. But if you just remember your so- social security number, then um, that's your Buddha nature. Can you do that? Five hundred, seven, ten. <laughs> um, Ajahn Shah has this comment I came across that I really like. Um, about going from the oneness to the difference. Um, He used to tell his students, you see the bamboo over there, how one is short and one is tall? That's enlightenment. Difference. Or just like we were saying, duck's legs are short, crane legs legs are long. Um, But so many of us, we get caught in this body of you were talking about the fear uh, or maybe another way of being caught in the fear is is caught in your role
2: mm-hmm.
1: does anyone here ever get caught in your role?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah and it's not your fault sometimes people do this to you
2: mm-hmm.
1: right. um, and, and that's why we need these gaps in our life even the ones between the thoughts, so that we have something to trust in, other than that thing we continually make ourselves to be. So that, that we trust in that gap. Trust in the gap. <laughs> That's what I say. There's one for every generation.
4: So Michael, what place did you lunch? Uh
1: huh. See more.
4: Live my life through so my role mm-hmm. as and, and my role is husband, is mm-hmm. what, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and in places where I'm not sure, I go to the role of protecting. of safety. The door is over there, my back is never Yeah. If I'm not conscious of this is what I do all the time. Yeah. Or I sit off the edge of the room. Yeah. yeah. And it's so the yeah. and i and
1: I'm comfortable. That yeah. I'm comfortable with. Yeah. And, and over time, it gets old. right? And, and never mind for you, for everybody else. Everyone's like, oh, there he's doing the thing again. Let him, let him be the protector. And then other people might feel like, hey, uh, I want him to relate to me, not like protect me. But your response will be, oh, I've got to protect you somehow. Um, when I did the blindfolded exercise the first time, I was with somebody who owned a restaurant. Mm. So he thought it would be, oh, and I was on a retreat and I was eating really good food, and at the time I wasn't eating any wheat. So he thought it would be fun to take me to his room and put me blindfolded in a chair and feed me stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So he was feeding me cookies, and we're supposed to do this in silence. so uh, something about it that's, you know, kind of fun. And also, after all, he recognized that he, he was just doing, he was kind of an automatic pilot. He was like, oh, what I do is I feed people. Mm. And I want to have them a good time. And he didn't give me any space. Mm. It was like he was going to make me have an experience and I was going to like it and mm. it was going to taste good. Mm. Okay? So that's the interbeing aspect of the role is that it's not just suffering for you when there's too much of it. It can be suffering for other people. Um, and there's a time for it. And so probably you're really good at it. And there might be a time where, like, we hear some freaky noise out there and I'm going to look around the room because I'm not getting up. <laughs> and I'll look to you. And you'll, and you'll get up. And you'll serve us and yourself that, that way.
4: I, and I will probably do before you book because I'm, I'm prepared to. Be.
1: Yeah. I'm always prepared
4: to. Be. Yeah. The, the only problem is, is life, as I know, yeah, is tasteless. Uh huh. Yeah. There's nothing. Yeah. There's you no know, excitement. There's no.
1: Yeah, the protector is always kind of rehearsing.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and at stay ready Yeah. So you never really. Experience anything except
1: tension. Uh huh. So, so what, what, what would a protector need? Um. I, I, it makes me think. When I, when I was in university, I, I had this gig where I had to look after this little girl. Once in a while, not very much who was a professor's daughter, actually. And she was, I don't know, maybe four, I think? And she lived in this really beautiful apartment. Um, but her room had the fire escape going up past the window. Just like windows like this, really big windows, but the fire escape went up on a diagonal. And so mm-hmm. she, cou- she wouldn't go to sleep.
2: Mm-hmm. It was so
1: hard to get her to sleep. One day I said, why is it so hard to sleep? She said, because... Um, I'm scared someone's going to come up the fire escape because sometimes someone from the upper apartment actually takes the fire escape. Mm. So uh, I said, uh, yeah, it would be hard to sleep. And I was trying to figure out what to do. Finally, I was so frustrated. I said, it was going on and on and on. So finally I said, okay, tonight you lie down, put the covers over your head. You know, I'm going to sit at the end of the bed and I'm going to watch the fire escape. Mm. So if I watch the fire escape, then you don't have to. She's like, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> so she got in bed. And actually what she really did was she lay down with the blanket stickier <laughs> and she watched me watching the fire escape. And then um, five minutes later she was sound asleep. In psychology, there's a name for this which is called taking over the defense. You see someone's defensiveness your protectiveness, where it serves and where it doesn't serve. And where it doesn't serve, we call that defensiveness. I actually don't like the word defensiveness. Freud made that word up. Freud used terminology that was from the military, a lot of his terminology. I liked the word, I I came up with this term, um, personality strategy. It's a strategy of the personality. I don't know if that works, but it's kind of fun. So, I would say, okay, you're being, def- you know, you're being protective right now, so I'll do that for you. Or Dave will do it, Dave is going to be the protector. Look at his posture right now, he is the protector. And then you don't have to do it. And this will bring up fear for you, um, because how are you going to be if you're not the, the protector?
4: I also have a story. Yeah. And this comes from my father. Uh-huh. who's Alcoholic and inconsistent. Uh-huh. He, 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 you know, mm-hmm. he has not proven himself, mm-hmm. or, or he's not ready. Whatever the story mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. So I've had very few men in my life. Yeah. Well. But when I do, yeah, then trust them with my life. Yeah.
1: So, this, and so you recognizing that is the beginning of the pattern of changing it. From the Buddhist perspective, we, well, not in the Tibetan tradition, but in other traditions, we don't try and find some way that's positive now. All we ask you to do is just to be aware of it. We don't have some like good technique, okay, take this pill, replace it with this, do this, do this, do this. Just, okay, you're aware of it now. And then, also, if you're aware of it, to be aware of how you're aware of it. Because sometimes we're aware of something, and it doesn't change. (laughs) Because we're not really aware of it. We're kind of aware of it in the way we want to be aware of it. Um, Yeah, so thank you for sharing. And also, you know, it's freaky. It's dangerous. One instruction I heard once from meditation practices. Your mind is a really bad neighborhood. Don't go there alone. <laughs> <laughs> so you need to use something to go there. And so what do you use? You use your breathing. You use your breathing. When I, when, I, when I used to work more with kids, I used to always say to them, your breath is your best friend, but the most loyal friend. You can trust your breathing. It will always be there, no matter how scared you are, or if you're in some crazy compulsive move, move, mood. Um, just all you can think about is, you know, poutine. <laughs> you know, stop. Find your breathing. Um, especially if it's your fourth poutine. <laughs> So this is all to say, I'm going to sum up this section and basically uh, just say that what Sakito is saying is that these conditions that you're in right now, right now, are the perfect place to wake up. It couldn't be better. Your life, how it is right now, is the perfect place to wake up. The, the worry you have, fear you have, trouble you have, your body. It's the perfect place to wake up. Climate change. Yeah? Nuclear power. Prisons. Uh, this is the perfect time to be awake. You have to be awake to these conditions and the conditions are waking you up if you see that you're not separate from That's what we're doing. Um, Sometimes you have to face things really directly and really honestly. And sometimes... Okay, I could just stop there and really sound like, you know, Zenny or something. You just have to face things really honestly. And also sometimes you have to walk away. Sometimes you also have to know when you can't go into something that's showing up. And you just have to, you know, go for a walk, and ha- have a glass of water, and maybe do some sun salutations, and stay away from people. Um, so I, I just wanted to read a little uh, passage here. To some, uh, here it is. So here's what uh, Shinra Suzuki has to say. When you really know yourself, you will realize how important it is to practice Sazen. Let's just use the word meditation. When you really know yourself, you'll realize how important it is to practice meditation. Before you know what you're doing, you don't know why you practice. You think you're quite free and that whatever you do is your choice, but actually, You're creating karma for yourself and others. You don't know what you're doing, so you don't think there's any need to practice meditation. But we have to pay our own debts. No one else can pay our debts. That's why it's necessary to practice. To fulfill our responsibility, we practice. In other words, practice is a moral responsibility. We have to. If you don't practice, you don't feel so good, and you create problems for others. (laughs) (laughs) But not knowing this, you say, why is it necessary to practice? Moreover, when you say, I have Buddha nature, you might think Buddha nature is something like a diamond in your sleeve. But true Buddha nature is not like this. A diamond is G, not Ri. We are involved with the world of G without realizing Ri. You don't know why you practice. So, if you the more you recognize interdependence, the more you'll want to practice. At first you practice because you're lonely, you want to meet other people. You heard a lot of people are coming to center of gravity, and they're your age, and they're, you know. They're nice and you saw their pictures on Facebook and this looks like a cool place to come. And then after a while you realize, oh, there's awakening, something in me. And um, the more that happens, the more you get motivated to practice. So some people say, oh, I need this big discipline and like I've got to sit every morning and you know. And if you come at it like I have to be more disciplined, it won't work. Well, it works for some characters, it works. Mm But most of us, it, won't. it It only really works if, when your heart starts opening and you realize you don't know what you're doing. And you're a train wreck. And you're creating a lot of trouble. <laughs> he doesn't even say for yourself. <laughs> this is, you're creating a lot of trouble for other people. <laughs> yeah. And we all know when we're really self-centered, we don't realize we're creating a lot of trouble. So, the level of interdependence is so deep that it's even happening at the level of the sense organs. Nothing is born by itself. Nothing is born by itself. Everything that's born it is taking the world with it. No matter how small it is. And you're in that. That's you. So. Another paragraph. Um. Maybe we can have a few minutes just to talk about this before we say goodnight. Do you want to stretch a little bit? <laughs> we, well, we'll, we'll talk and stretch at the same time. <laughs> just because we only have a few minutes. Because the blindfolding exercise took a long, long time. Rose crawled away. <laughs> so, any comments, questions, clarification?
4: feels like when you, if you start with the sensory uh, recognizing the interdependence of sensory perception, mm-hmm. it feels like that, that's where it can lead into nihilism or solipsism. It's just like everything is, things only exist because I see them or, or whatever. But um, I'm just curious where, because both, I mean in the poem, mm-hmm and the way you're talking about that is yes. there's, it, there's a leap from that realization to yeah. the recognition that you're
1: okay. you can't separate so, so when we say you know, you're seeing something you're affecting what you're seeing so you can't talk about interdependence without talking about cause and effect without talking about karma if you talk about interdependence or you talk about impermanence without karma then you get Nietzsche you get, you get the end of western existentialism you, you get nihilism you get too much listening to Nick Cave <laughs> right. Think, things are really impermanent what does it matter what I do it's all just a dream But when you see it with karma, with cause and effect, and this is what Suzuki Roshi is saying, right? Is that, yes, there's a level of interdependence, and when you see it with karma, you realize that you're in the web. You're not watching the web, you're the web. So everything you do matters. The way you see something changes completely what it is you're looking at, right? And that's where the not knowing comes in. And so if if you just think you know, and you go tinker around, maybe not so much change is really gonna happen. But when you can really see all the different perspectives, and realize you're part of that, then how you move in that situation will make huge changes in that situation. Because there's the interdependence and the karma. One thing that a lot of modern Buddhist teachers do and Bernie Glassman did this a lot. is they say that the realization of the Buddha is the oneness of life, is interdependence. And that's not exactly right. There's another 50%, which is the realization is interdependence, and to be in interdependence, you have to have non-attachment. You have to have non-attachment to views so that you can really be in the cause and in the effect so some people go f- too far on one side like the Buddha said everything's one it's all interdependent he also taught nirvana or to just go away on the other side the Buddha only taught non-attachment and also you're in the web <laughs> you can't get over it so you need both and it's really uncomfortable to have the sand and the dough but originally they they're shaking you probably see this in your work a lot you know here's this problem here's how we're going to fix it it doesn't work you you need the interdependence and the impermanence and the karma action you have to do something and sometimes you shouldn't do anything and that's the action. It's really hard sometimes to just sit still and, re- and say that that might be the best action. Like if you're angry, the mm-hmm. best thing might be to sit still right now. Was there a hand up over here? Yeah. Yes.
5: Um, this idea of practice we talked before—it's um, something that sometimes I get to do a little dole about it, like. If isn't the practice the same to sit for an hour and watch your thoughts and um, isn't it the same to go out in the world and watch your words or watch your actions Like, yeah. you know, what is it that really defines of, I have a
1: daily practice uh-huh.
5: I get this sometimes a bit yeah. confused about it there's
1: no, difference. Yeah. there's no difference except uh, without a formal practice You can't see that there's no difference. (laughs) Sitting still. So let me know how it goes. (laughs) What year is it? 2011? So in 2021, let's talk about it in Portugal. Maybe there won't be a It'll all just be one big bank account. <laughs> 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 all those countries in debt are just going to turn into a big bank account. Um, anyways, the, uh, I, 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 on the one hand, yeah, there's no difference. And on the other hand, if you don't have a formal practice, it's really hard to kind of keep it going in daily life. Mm-hmm. It just is. I have this all the time. Hmm. I don't practice for a little while. I really so feel. So
5: it's actually the final practice is what trains you to, to be. Yeah. In yeah. Time.
1: Yeah. And then you can say everything's practice, yeah. but there are some people who just say, "Oh, everything's practice," and it's a little bit of like an excuse. Mm-hmm. It's like, "Oh, I can just not really look at that." When I was young and I started meditating, the big question for me was, when I meditate, what part of me is threatened? What part of me doesn't want to be here? What part of me is getting worked up, sitting here? That that was the key question. most of the time, we're just so loyal to our suffering. It's like I, you you love it, you spend a lot of money on it, you do a lot of therapy on it. But um, there's a time where you realize, like, you just have to open, it. or as the Buddha said, you know, fully know suffering, fully know it, and sitting still will bring that up. And so will a lot of other things. The practice we do here has this kind of root in stillness. So, homework, homework. Practice is the kai. Yes, but I guess all. And that's, that space that you can touch when you're practicing, and I, I'm talking about formal practice here, that, that kind of like uh, place where there are gaps between your compulsions, that is non-harming. That, that's the essence of non-violence. That's space. That's like the non-harming impulse in the world. And the more you can apprentice yourself to it, the more you can stay connected to that space, um, it changes how you operate in the world. Um, as opposed to this idea of nonviolence as an ideology. Just like we studied the Sandokai this afternoon, and we were blindfolded and we did the Sandokai. So, so if people say, you know, what did you study? Oh, well, we studied a little bit, the Sandoka. What else? We did the Sandoka. And then you can get attached to that. We did, and I'm doing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> can't you tell? <laughs> you can't tell? You mean you can't tell? <laughs> and then you don't come to another intensive because no one could tell the difference. <laughs>
3: There's something, it's something about what we've talked about previously and today that keeps coming up for me, which is hard to speak. It's something about um, about the necessity to be with pain uh-huh. and feel
2: it. Mm-hmm.
3: And the attachment that comes with that. Mm-hmm. But there's also something unethical in in only an attachment. Like there's there's some necessity to go through and experience that mm-hmm. and then let it pass. Mm-hmm. But I can't find mm-hmm. the boundaries. Yeah. And it makes me confused mm-hmm. about Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure um, I'm not sure where to I can't find a grounding within that that happens Mm -hmm. to to move from and come back to and I wonder if you have any thoughts on that
1: (laughs) you do I think you articulated it really clearly. You, the only thing that I would add is, it's not that you're not attached to the pain. You're not attached to your notions about the pain. So, so, so you just start getting closer to the pain. Maybe if it's like an emotional pain, where is it in your body? Yeah. and you start to breathe. And then it was, whoa, it's like, you can see the pain as like a wave maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's too much. So you back off a little bit. And, but the whole time, you're using your breath to, to have a relationship with the pain. Whatever kind of pain it is. Yeah. But what you're not clinging to is any of your ideas that are coming up about it. Where did this come from? Why is this happening to me? Why did my dad do that? Why did my mother do that? I mean whatever ever whatever story you have about it. You just you you don't that's what you're not attached to. And then you don't have to let go of the pain, because it'll just go away. I used to have this mantra I used to always say to myself that nothing lasts longer than five minutes. Like nothing intense lasts longer than five minutes. Even if it's really intense, in about five minutes it there's some break. And then it gets intense again. It gets worse. (laughs) And then there's like a little break. And then, you know. So with pain, it's the same thing. When I experience pain, one of the... Some things I experience, and I can be really fully right there, and when I experience pain, what I like to do is complain about it. Right? Whoever's closest, I'll just start <laughs> blabbing and blabbing about it. Oh, I've got this pain, it's so painful, blah, blah, blah. And that's my way of not really being in it. Right. It's, it's just talking about it. So for me, the practice is you know, no, just coming back to the body and not clinging to what I think about it. But it's not that we're not attached to the pain. Attached to the pain. Yeah. Be really attached to the pain. But just don't attach to your ideas about it. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: That
1: makes sense. Yeah, it does. Fully attached to the pain. Be one with the pain. It's like we could have like a cheerleading section, like one with the pain. (laughs) Pom poms. When you meditate you get an inner cheerleading section that you can start to trust that says, yes, yes, you can do this. You can, you can get close to the pain. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. So you know this already. Just that one little thing about not attached to the pain. It's
6: little. Just a little. It's just a little. Bit. <laughs> it's, it's just a tidbit. Last
1: comment, and then and then oh, we need
6: really? to finish. It's, it's more of like an anecdote. Okay. But um, the... The, I, I know um, my boyfriend's father is well is retired but he's he, he works at AstraZeneca in pain management uh-huh. research center and he goes to all of these pain conferences and and at, he's in the research management side of things and uh-huh. he's always dealing with the in men and having a lot of trouble but they have all this paraphernalia. Like, no smoking signs, but it's no pain. And, like, bumper Uh, stickers that say against pain. And it's just really funny. Like, we could do, like, um, an (laughs) anti-that or (laughs) something. I mean, mean, but, like, I keep thinking about medication and having been on a morphine drip and Uh working with pain and having, yeah, it's Hmm. not... It, like, what happens when you're trying to be one with the pain, and then the medication doesn't mm-hmm. allow you to mm-hmm. be, mm-hmm. it's a whole other. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and
6: there's a time for that.
1: Um, you know, I, I, I spent some time a few years ago with the Dalai Lama. He came to Buffalo, and there was a meeting of people who were doing, you know, who were bringing some Buddhist teachings into the worlds of psychology, and the body, So it was a small group, and one person asked him this question. If you're in the hospital, and you're trying to be one with pain, and you're in so much pain, what should you do? What's the technique? And he said, you should take medication (laughs) so that it doesn't hurt so much. (laughs) (laughs) And then you take a dose well enough just like we were saying. That then you can have some proximity with the pain. And then you can relate to it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the dose decreases and decreases. Now, that's what the Dalai Lama says. But any of you who've done... Who, if you're an or someone who's around terminal pain, you know. That people who are in really intense mm-hmm. terminal pain, the medications don't work. Mm-hmm. Over the long And then what do you have to do? You have to do what our medical system completely fails at, is you have to work with your mind. (laughs) Non-attachment to your view. Or what we would spin in a positive way is uh, appropriate view, right view, so that you can uh, have appropriate mindfulness and know appropriate action. And then you can relate to the pain. But there is a place for medication. Yeah. yeah Some people have this like bumper sticker in their mind, like medication, meditation. It's one or the other. Mm-hmm. but you can mix them, and sometimes you have to mix them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If you're so depressed that you haven't or, or insomnia is a good one, you haven't slept and you get into that cycle. Has anyone been in that cycle before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was in that cycle once. And then uh, uh, it, I was in it for six weeks where I just couldn't sleep and I was doing all the meditation practices I could muster. And then my friend who's a doctor's like, have one of these. <laughs> <laughs>
6: and I had a pill. You know,
1: and I did it for, I think, two or three nights. And I was, back, I was back on the cycle. Now, I still had a hard time sleeping, but I was in the cycle again.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I could use... Some meditation practices I know to work with it, but if I didn't take that pill, I, I don't know. I, I was just a disaster.
4: I was on working for my operation. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And after four days, when the wall started to ripple, it, and the cardiologist yeah. said, "I have to be out of these. i yeah. I'm not, I can't tell the difference between my reality anymore." Exactly. Because it, there it was no change in my mind. I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't say yeah. yeah. And she said, "We'll put you on a towel. are starting pneumonia." uh morphine. It hurt. Yeah. Well, I was aware.
1: yeah. And then you save the rest for your friends. <laughs> don't don't hog the morphine. It's interdependence, man. Yeah. Share the morphine. Share the morphine. It's just like a potluck.
2: <laughs>
1: we should all just bring our drugs and just share them. Um I hope that wasn't recorded. Okay, so let, let's finish chanting.